Since the terror attacks launched by Hamas against Israel happened on October 7th, there have been rallies and marches around the world. That's not overly surprising. Wars have long brought out protests or marches, both for and against the various factions. Usually, though, the marchers are calling for peace. What's been surprising over the past few weeks is how many people in the Western world are now openly saying that they're on the side of Hamas, a terrorist organization which brutally raped, tortured, murdered, and kidnapped unarmed civilians. Disturbingly, a lot of these are professors, students, union organizers, self-proclaimed rights activists who would describe themselves as progressive. Hello and welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. I'm Brian Lilly, your host. And to talk about how we got to this ghastly moment with people in Western countries openly cheering the worst slaughter of Jews from the Holocaust, I'm joined by someone you may know, certainly millions do. Ben Shapiro is an author, journalist, one of the biggest American conservative podcasters. He's one of the founders of The Daily Wire, where he hosts The Ben Shapiro Show, and he spent his career documenting the growing extremism of left-wing activism. If you're in the Calgary area, he'll be there November 16th. I'll give out details on that in a little bit. But on this podcast episode, we're going to discuss how over the past few weeks, we've seen more and more people proclaiming support for the actions of Hamas, an openly genocidal terrorist group fighting against a fellow liberal democracy. And how it's become clear those so-called progressives who rushed out early to celebrate the savage attack on Israel, well, they weren't making a mistake. They didn't jump the gun. Backing Hamas is part of their plan. And I'm purposely saying Hamas rather than the Palestinian people or the people of Gaza. Because if you endorse the violence that we've seen, then you are endorsing Hamas. As we've all seen by now, some Hamas fighters documented their evil exploits. They were using GoPro cameras. They used their mobile phones or even the phones of their victims so that they could proudly show the world their hatred and brutality. How intense is the spirit to get free? How deep is the spirit to get free? How beautiful is the spirit to get free? That Palestinians literally learned how to fly on hand gliders. That was the voice of Harsha Walia, the former head of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, celebrating Hamas terrorists learning to fly hang gliders so they could drop into an Israeli music concert where they raped and murdered hundreds of kids. Those comments were made two weeks after the attack that killed more than 1,400 people in the Jewish state. Walia's remarks, like so many professors and other left-wingers, were planned and deliberate because the Palestinian people, in their view, are a people who are oppressed by a colonial settler society. These are the words, the same words we hear used by the diversity, equity, and inclusion set who want to use issues of race to determine who is oppressed, who is an oppressor, and then assign them a ranking. How did we get to this point? How did the rot get so deep? And is there a way back? I think Ben Shapiro will have some insight about all of this and more. And he joins us today from South Florida. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. <laughs> It's, it's, I wish it was under better circumstances, uh, but this is an issue that you and I have talked about in the past. Um, but the, the, the quickness and the rise of the anti-Semitism that we've seen over the past few weeks since the Hamas terror attacks on Israel is remarkable. But it, it also tells me that there's something backing it up. There's been stuff happening in the background that allowed us to get to this point. So let me ask you the question I mentioned in the introduction. How did we get to the point where Hamas is openly celebrated in our streets, in our colleges and universities, in our school system, by union leaders. How did we get here? 
So I think you have to break that down into a, a few different categories of people who are celebrating Hamas. So you have the radical Islamists who are celebrating Hamas both domestically and abroad. You're seeing hundreds of thousands of people march in the streets in solidarity with a terrorist group calling for the, quote unquote, freeing of Palestine from the river to the sea, which, of course, would mean the obliteration not just of 1,500 innocent Jewish civilians, um, but the obliteration of 7 million Jews in the region. And that's not a shock. I mean, this has been this has been true for literally decades. This has been true since the inception of the state of Israel. The only difference that the West decided in our own moral idiocy to import hundreds of thousands of people who think like this in the misgotten belief, in this misbegotten belief that, that we could somehow not even bother to try and assimilate folks to our ways of thinking about religion and politics, that, that people would just come to the West and immediately act as good Western citizens and abandon all those old Jew-hating beliefs. And that obviously was not true. And you've seen the impact of that across Europe and Canada in the United States. Uh, and that's, that's kind of part one. Part two is the fellow travelers, the people who are joining in the coalition. And that, I think, to a lot of people is, is the most shocking part, is, is seeing people who they thought were mainstream liberals or winking and nodding, in some cases openly promoting Hamas or making excuses for Hamas or attempting to both sides this thing. And that comes from a coalitional approach to wrecking Western institutions. That has less to do with Israel than it has to do with Israel as a stand-in for Western values and Western institutions. And there, this is how you end up with the idiocy of, for example, queers for Palestine. A lot of people look at this sort of stuff where you see protests, where, where somebody's flying a trans flag next to somebody who's flying a Hamas flag. Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. The Hamas guy will kill the trans guy in like one second. And that's, of course, true, but that's not the point. The reason that the person with the trans flag is marching next to the person with the Hamas flag is this is a coalitional effort to destroy Western values and destroy Western institutions. And, and that has very deep philosophical roots going back to Lenin. It has, it has philosophical roots going back most, most plausibly to Franz Fanon, who is the, the founder of the sort of anti-colonialist belief system whereby violence was inherently called for justifiable and good if it was directed against the, the colonial the colonial powers. And the left in the United States and, and abroad has translated colonial power to just mean powerful. So any institution that is powerful is a colonizing power. This is why you hear the language of decolonization applied by Black Lives Matter. It makes no sense in that context. What exactly does colonization have to do with the civil rights of black people in the United States? Black people are not native to the United States. We're not talking about indigenous people. It doesn't have anything to do. But the idea is that if you can translate over the idea that Western culture is inherently evil and flawed, which resulted in colonialism, and that anybody who has been affected by Western culture is therefore part of a powerless wretched of the earth, that's, that's Franz Fanon's phrase, then that coalition can come together around the common cause of destroying all these institutions. And Israel is just the most obvious thing. You defend other members of the coalition. It doesn't matter if in the end, those other members of the coalition would kill you. For the moment, you guys are allies, and that alliance is what matters. You know, as I've looked at the the letters from various student unions, and look, I, I know they've been happening all over, but I'm in Toronto, and I'm looking at the ones happening here, and you're familiar with this city and the schools, um, where they put out these letters in support of Palestinian resistance in any form necessary, and then they cloak it in this decolonization, settler colonialism that that justifies anything. And you read the letter and you say, well, I'm reading this. And to me, this says that if an indigenous Canadian group decided to, or American decided to say, you know what, I'm going to go into the city and I'm going to just start killing people and taking their houses. Now, I don't think they will. That's not where the population is. But these people would defend that because they say, oh, absolutely, they are so against this power structure that they would defend yeah. any violence. 
That's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. This is this is the stupidity of of what and the and moral evil of Fanon had to say, which is again this idea that colonialism is sort of unique to the West, which of course is a lie. Every culture in human history has engaged in some form of imperialism or colonialism. That's literally the story of human migration across time. And, and unless you are willing to go back to you know the year fifteen thousand BC. And, and try and figure out exactly who was where when, and then their descendants get those places, then, then what, what exactly are you talking about? It, it, it is a stand-in for the West is evil and must be uniquely punished for its unique evil. What's most amazing in the case of Israel, of course, is that that requires a further flip, which is the idea that the Jews are the colonizing people in Israel when the Jews are actually the indigenous people <laughs> in Israel. That's the part that, that really is astonishing. They go even one step beyond that, and that gives away the real game because it isn't about colonized versus colonizer. What it really is about is, quote unquote, powerful versus powerless, right? It's about, it's about using the structure that Fanon created for colonized people against the colonizers and trying to apply that to anyone who is powerful in any circumstance, whether or not they're powerful for a good reason or a bad reason. Anybody who is powerful, those who rise up against that power structure and attempt to destroy it are justified in doing so in the most violent of fashions. Now, you're taking an example where Fanon and, and company would 100% agree with what you just said, which is the idea that if indigenous members of a community decided to simply go on a murder spree and kill people and do what Hamas just did, that a lot of members of the left would back it. That is, that is certainly true, but it's gone even further than that, which is you don't even have to be a colonized people in its technical sense of the term or a colonizer in the technical sense of the term. You just have to be part of the quote unquote power structure. If you're part of the power structure, then whatever is done to you is thereby justifiable and justified. Okay. Back up. You, you keep mentioning this, this man who was part of this. Tell us a little bit about him. Sure. So Franz Fanon was a, was a francophone from Martinique. Uh, in the he grew up in the in the 1930s, uh, and um, and he went to France. He spent time in Algeria, and while he was in Algeria, he began to have a lot of questions about about France. He was a Marxist by nature, and he he started to have questions about the French occupation of Algeria, and so he became a member of the terror group that would later go on to govern Algeria in the aftermath of the the Algerian War to separate from the French government. And in the middle of that, he wrote a bunch of books. His most famous book from 1961 is a book called The Wretched of the Earth. This book, The Wretched of the Earth, is what we're saying right now. He literally says violence is justified. Not only is violence justified, violence is is necessary. This is how the colonized man cleanses his soul of having been colonized. It's how he becomes the new man. This was taken up by big intellectual things like Jean-Paul Sartre wrote the introduction to Fanon's book. And in that in that introduction, he literally says killing a European is killing two birds with one stone because it's freeing the colonized and it's killing the colonizer. So that's a, that's an inherent good. He, he makes the case that you soft-hearted liberals who think that you're against co- colonization, you've benefited from colonization. That means you're part of this evil culture. And therefore, the only way to expiate your sins is to join in the revolution against your own culture. So th- this book, which was really about the Algerian war, but then was extended beyond its boundaries, was then extended even further into the realm of domestic politics, the idea being that Western culture is inherently flawed and evil. And so if you oppose that, then you are now on the side of the colonized. You, even if you grew up in a place like Canada or the United States, your soul has been colonized by this evil power structure. And the only way to break free of that colonization is to rise up against the power structure. And, you know, if people think we're focusing too much on this theory, this theory now, it it permeates our society. It goes down to elementary schools. I'm sure you've seen it in the uh, in the public schools around where you are. Um, I've seen you know people have sent me photos of classroom walls with decolonization up, and it's grade three. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, no, that's right. I mean, the, the, in order to understand the language that, that these folks are using, you actually have to look at the language they're using. When they say the language of settler colonialism or when they're saying decolonization is what we're, we're about, or even in, in its, its supposedly more innocent version, when you have land acknowledgments at events where they'll say, oh, we, we just acknowledge that we're sitting on indigenous land. What that really is is an attempt to suggest that the culture that you are a part of is uniquely evil because it engaged in colonialism or imperialism. Well, again, every single culture that we know about on planet Earth has engaged in battles over land, in battles of, for, for control of areas. Population migration is a, is a human universal. The difference is that the West happened to be really, really successful at it. And, and so because of that, the West is supposedly uniquely horrifying and terrible in every possible way. Now, of course, that logic is never applied today, depending on the regime. So if, if you're talking about the Russians attempting to take over Ukraine, then many of the same people who are standing for Hamas are in favor of Russia taking over Ukraine, for example. So the decolonization effort doesn't apparently apply over there. It doesn't apply to what China has been doing to Tibet. Like there are a bunch of different areas where it's pretty obvious what the game is, and the game is alliance against Western values. But yes, I mean, in order to understand the language, this is everything that ends up in a third grade classroom originally started in a pointy headed professor's head and then was boiled down and boiled down and boiled down further and evaporated down to sort of the core essence slogans that you will see taught at street level or or the, the sort of language that we all just we don't even know what it means. And so we assume we know what it means, but you, you have to look back at, at the roots of it to really understand what you're talking about. And you have to go to training seminars in corporate culture to learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion where you're taught about settler colonialism. Yes. I mean, again, all of this is an attempt by soft-hearted liberals to expiate their own guilt for their own civilization by supposedly teaching the evils of that civilization. Now, what's ironic about that is a lot of them are doing that in order to enrich themselves still on the basis of the civilization. So they want to they be Sartre revolutionaries, but without actually giving up the pay. Uh, which is which is what you see in a lot of corporations, right? The corporations like, yeah, we'll continue to benefit from capitalism and make our money, but we'll you know throw them a bone in the DEI category by talking about settler colonialism, and then maybe they'll leave us alone. Well, the thing is, they're not going to leave you alone. I mean, the reality is that you are feeding the alligator that's going to destroy you. We need to take a quick break right here, but more with Ben Shapiro when we come back. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How have you been feeling the past few weeks? Um, I, you know, you and your family are now in Florida. Um, you know, Toronto, I used to think, was a very safe place for for Jews. I wrote a, a column this week saying, I'm not sure. Now I'm not Jewish, but I've got a lot of Jewish friends, Jewish co-workers. All of them are telling me the same thing. There is an unease at, that they wouldn't expect in this city. And, you know, if you were in Dearborn, I'm sure that you, you would be very concerned for your family, but how are you feeling where you are after watching the manifestations of this theory uh, turn into outright Jew hatred? Out in the open. I mean, we're, we're concerned just as members of the Jewish community. Obviously, we're, we're very concerned. We're very active in our community. Uh, every Jew that I know, literally every one of them is in the process of buying a gun uh, and, and getting training with that gun. That's the beauty of living in Florida is that uh, everybody has a gun anyway. So uh, most of us had guns originally, but but now we're buying more guns. And like today I'm going for, for more gun training 
Uh, so I, I know better how to how to use that gun if, if God forbid I have to. I mean, the reality is for me because I'm very prominent in, in, in you know in, in public life and, and particularly on this issue. And one of the most prominent people, uh, it, probably the most prominent Orthodox Jew on the planet, right? It, uh, it, just in terms of pure number of social media followers. I mean, I have 24/7 security on me and my family, uh, and probably will for the rest of my life. I mean, that's that that's just the reality of the situation that that I live with. Um, the, the stuff that's been super disturbing. It's disturbing on several separate levels. I mean, it's the, it's the most emotionally affected uh, I've been the last three weeks in, in my entire life, and it's not particularly close. Uh, I think I was a little bit too young to, to really understand the full impact of 9-11. I was 17 when 9-11 happened. And so you, you don't, when you're a teenager, you don't experience that in, in quite the same way because when you're 17, you think you're invulnerable. And then when you're almost 40 and you have four kids, and then you look at the pictures of butchered babies and you're holding a, a five-month-old baby, which, which we have at home, and you see that you know, the pictures flash through your brain, uh, it's incredibly disturbing. So there, there are a bunch of levels on which it's unbelievably disturbing. On sort of the personal level, it's really disturbing because, again, we have incredibly close ties in Israel. I know hundreds of people who have been called up. Uh, I know all of the government leaders. I know, you know everybody's one degree removed. Uh, everyone I know has visited a funeral in the last couple of weeks in, in the state of Israel. Uh, literally everyone, and most of the multiple funerals. Uh, again, there will be more funerals in the state of Israel as Israel has to now deploy 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old you know, young people to go and defend their nation. So that that's one level of disturbance. It's just the pure human horror of it. Uh, the, the second level of disturbance is the fact that if you are Jewish, one of the great guarantors of Jewish security since 1948 has been the presence of Israel in the Middle East and the, and the power and strength of Israel and its ability to defend itself. And as someone who spends a fair bit of time over in Israel, um, you know, the, the vulnerability that was suddenly exposed is incredibly disturbing. And it's incredibly disturbing to everybody who's in Israel, which is why there's going to be a massive ground shift in how people think about politics in Israel. There's been all of this gaseous talk about judicial reform, not judicial reform, divisions between religious and secular in Israel. All of that's about to go by the wayside in a dramatic way. And the only thing that's going to matter for the next 20 to 40 years in Israel is going to be security first. That's all that's going to matter in the state of Israel. And it's going to be long lasting in a way that it wasn't in the United States, because the truth is, that what happened on 9-11 in the United States was not an existential danger to the United States. What, what happened in Israel from Hamas is an indic- it's indicative of a multi-front existential danger, not just from the Gaza Strip, but also from Hezbollah, which is a genocidal terror group located in Israel's north with 150,000 rockets pointed directly into Israeli civilian centers. The genocidal terror groups that exist in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, who say the exact same things as Hamas and who are allied with Hamas, and there's 3 million Palestinians living in those areas, a, a large number of whom are either associated with terror groups uh, or who support terror groups. The, uh, the presence of Iran. So suddenly Israel is awake to the fact that their their strength does not guarantee their future security. So things are going to change over there in a dramatic way. And then finally, the response of the world has been so unbelievably disheartening. Obviously, you've seen support from certain political actors in the aftermath of an atrocity, because that's what they have to do. Uh, they have to say, oh, they, they, but then they, they, the quick swift sh- swivel into two-state solution is the only thing that has to happen here. What this really is about is people building bathrooms and a fraud. If it just weren't, the, and we have to warn the Israelis, they have to be very careful about civilian casualties, really, really careful as though the Israelis are not literally risking the life and limb of their own citizens in order to stop the death of civilians in Gaza who Hamas is hiding in front of its rockets. The, the, the shift that took place in about 2.5 seconds from this is the worst atrocity that we've seen on tape in since the Holocaust, or at least since 9-11. What, it, it, the, the shift from that to 
we have to put dampers on Israel. Stop Israel. Israel is the real human rights violator. Huge protests in the streets in support of open terrorist groups. Like that's been unbelievably disheartening, obviously, and and very difficult to contend with on an emotional I, level. I can only imagine. Um, I mean, you you know my longstanding uh, support for Israel, and it, you know I'm, I didn't do that two point five second pivot, but I've watched a lot of it. You know, I know you follow Canadian politics. You uh, you know. You like poking Justin Trudeau over silly things. This is a very serious issue, and his initial statements were very good. And I'm not going to uh, nitpick our government too much because we don't have a lot to offer, and that's a problem. We should have more to offer. But his initial statements were good. And then that hospital incident, he couldn't say that Israel didn't do it. And it's because of divisions in his own Liberal Party caucus. And you know, I, I would have to say, you, you know, you and I are not fans of Joe Biden, but Biden has actually been pretty good. Yes. He's been pretty he good has. on this. He's been much better on this for Tr- sure. Trudeau's for sure, been than, but- one of those guys that's wavering because he's, you know, he's licking his finger and putting it up in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. Not a major shock. I mean, I think that first of all, he's he's deeply concerned about his own domestic political prospects, given the fact that the conservatives finally have a, a pretty excellent candidate uh, in Pierre Polivier. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm screwing up his name in some way, but he's terrific. Um, and uh, but you know, Trudeau, like a lot of Democratic leaders in the in the House of Congress, you know, he, he's going to provide some sort of you know generalized support. But he's so afraid of his own base that he's afraid that they're going to come after him and he's going to lose support if he actually says the right thing. There are some members of of Congress who are who are doing the same thing in the United States. Uh, you mentioned Biden. Biden overall has been a lot stronger than than I thought he would be, uh, given his history with with kind of kowtowing to Iran uh, and making nice with, with yes, terrorist groups. I mean, he sent hundreds of millions of dollars to the UNRWA, which then got funneled directly to Hamas in many cases. Uh, well, the, the restoration of- Stephen Harper, you know, you came up and met Stephen Harper when he was prime minister in Canada. He blocked funding for UNRWA. One of Justin Trudeau's first acts was to bring it back. And, yeah, exactly. and they said, well, no, we've got assurances that they won't be teaching people to hate Jews. You, you, all, all we have to do is keep looking at the textbooks and- you know, I think our school systems in our countries are bad. The UNRWA ones literally teach young Palestinian children to hate Jews from the time they can read. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I did a whole podcast yesterday about UNRWA and, and their evils. I mean, the fact is that UNRWA is, I mean, they, they are working hand in glove with Hamas. Hamas hides terror tunnels directly beneath UNRWA schools, knowing that if Israel has to hit the, the tunnel, it'll have to blow up the school. And then the UN is going to complain about human rights atrocity. UNRWA schools are dominant. I mean, Ismail Haniyeh, the head of Hamas, is a graduate of, a, of an UNRWA school. Uh, that, that, that is, you know, the reality, unfortunately, in the Gaza Strip and also in uh, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. UNRWA is a garbage organization, but Joe Biden did the same thing. He came back in, he immediately restored funding to UNRWA. And, and you're starting to see, again, this, even, even from people who have been pretty good like Biden, you, you've started to see uh, a shift back toward the status quo ante, which is, well, you know, there, there does have to be a two-state solution. The, the, the two big narratives that I've seen that are, that are sort of moving in that direction, even from people who are, who are pretty pro-Israel so far, uh, are the, we do have to keep warning the Jews not to, not to be too rough. You know, we have to warn them. We have to, those, those Jews, you know, if we, if we weren't warning them off just carpet bombing Gaza, that's what they'd be doing today. You know, we got to be very careful yeah. about the civilian casualties. Now, I assume there's some politics to that. I assume that there's an attempt to basically mil- sort of placate some of the Arab countries that are surrounding, give them some cover with their own people. But that does create this bizarre stupidity where you're supposed to think that if, if it weren't for the West telling Israel to go hands off here, that Israel would be 
turning the Gaza Strip into glass or something, which obviously is untrue. And Israel has never engaged in war in that form or fashion. And by the way, Israel does have the power to do that. I mean, if Israel decided to completely unleash the Air Force, there just wouldn't be any people alive in Gaza. This is the difference between Israel and its enemies. If Israel decided to unleash its full military might, there would be no civilians alive in the Gaza Strip, and they don't do it. And if Hamas had the military might, there would be no civilians alive in Israel, and they do do that. That's exactly what they attempt to do. So it's, it, you know, that that's narrative number one. The other narrative is the two-state solution stuff. Why this is the quote-unquote opportunity to talk about a two-state solution is absolutely beyond me. Like, where is the evidence? And that, of course, carries the implication that if Israel were just a little more giving, if they were just if they would just give a little harder, then this sort of stuff would stop. And that's a lie. They, they abandoned the Gaza Strip in 2005. Hamas has run it ever since. They turned it into a mini terror state. And that's not a shock. That's exactly what would happen in Judea and Samaria as well. That's exactly what would happen if there were a Palestinian state in the West Bank. Everyone knows this. And so the idea that there's like a two state solution just around the corner or the the Palestinian people have vast disagreements with Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Palestinian Authority, vast disagreements. They, they, they actually hate those people. Okay, well, I wish that were true. I wish it were. If it is true, it would be about time for them to elect a government or put in place a government willing to actually establish a successful Palestinian state. So far, the evidence is not rolling in. We had Daniel Pipes on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Daniel said that now is the time for Israel to obliterate Hamas, and he thinks it must be done. But he also said something that I, I'm not sure about. He said he he believes, and, and he points to some polling, and I think you have to question polling in, in a place like the Gaza Strip, but he said he believes that most Palestinian people want to rid themselves of Hamas at this point, that they, they are done being used as human shields and cannon fodder, and now's the, the time. What do you think? I mean, I certainly hope that's the case, um, but yeah, it, it's very, very difficult to ascertain what those numbers look like. And it is true that a huge number of civilians support Hamas. I mean, one of the things that people have not talked about at all is that during the, the attacks of October 7th, there were literally thousands of civilians who joined in the murder spree. There were civilian. I mean, there's tape of this. The civilians literally walked into Kibbutz Berry and they started stealing children's bicycles. They started they started engaging in in some of the atrocities that we saw. I mean, this is full on tape. And it, it, the in in fact, one of the big questions in this whole attack was how was it that Hamas knew exactly where to hit? How does it they they, they knew like they they actually had maps. They found them on their bodies of specific locations in each one of these locations with the number of people in the house, with the house address, with how many people were were of what age. And so the answer is that there were workers from Gaza who Israel had given work permits to go into these areas and do work, but gone back to Hamas and handed over that information. So if they, you know, if there is a, a Gazan population that doesn't want Hamas to be in charge, now would be an excellent time for you to say something about it. And, you know, we, we can, we can speculate as much as we want that if Hamas is destroyed, that there will be a new day and, and Gazan civilians will suddenly put in place some, some liberal social justice party that is willing to make peace with Israel, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. So far, that has not been remotely the case in any place. That they, in fact, what the polls tend to show is that if there had been an election in the West Bank, the reason there hasn't been an election in the West Bank for the last 10 years is because Mahmoud Abbas, I mean, Mahmoud Abbas hasn't had an election since 2008, I believe. It, the, the, that was the last election. He's in the 15th year of a four-year term, <laughs> Mahmoud Abbas. The reason he hasn't held an election is because what the polls tend to show is that if there were an election, Hamas would win. So, again, this idea that there's like this vast Palestinian population that is just itching for a peaceful resolution with Israel, there may be some, but unless they have a political voice, there is no way for us to ever find out. I mean, put aside whether it's true or not, there's literally no way for Israel to make a deal with random people on the street. You can't do that. That's not how any of this works. You mentioned uh, that, you know, 
prior to this invasion, there was a lot of discussion about judicial reform, not ju- judicial reform. We've covered the the protests that were happening in the streets of Tel Aviv over Netanyahu's uh, proposed changes. But, you know, it, there's going to be a reckoning at the end of this. I, I think Netanyahu's going to wear some of this after a very, um, you know, at times controversial, but also storied career as a politician. I think he's going to wear a lot of this. Looking forward, what do you see happening? I think an entire generation of Israeli politicians is going to get wiped aside. So in Israeli politics, the one thing that you cannot do is is miss the, is miss the thing. And so Golda Meir, who had a long history in, in Israeli politics and actually won an election subsequent to to the 1973 war. But because of the Yom Kippur War, her political career was basically over. And she's seen as a very checkered figure by a lot of Israelis because of her missing it in 73. This is a much worse mess. And so Netanyahu is going to bear an extreme level of, of brunt from the Israeli public. You can see that in, in the polls. 80% of the Israeli public is unhappy with the government. Uh, that includes a huge number of people who voted for Netanyahu, who are now shifting away from Netanyahu and looking for, for somebody else. Uh, you've already seen members of the government who have taken responsibility for this. You have Gallant, who's the defense minister, has said that he, he said, I take some responsibility for this. Uh, former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett came out and said, I take some responsibility for this. Benny Gantz, who's, who's currently joined the government and, and was part of the last government, he said, I take some responsibility for this. Uh, Bibi said there will be an investigation, uh, and then we'll see who takes responsibility for this. Uh, the one who has taken no responsibility is, of course, Yair Lapid, who's sort of the left-wing op- opposition uh, to Netanyahu in, in the state of Israel. But in the end, the the person who is most likely to provide the Israeli people with the security that they require is going to be the next rising generation. And it's unclear who that is. There isn't a figure who's quite like that right now. The polls right now show a lot of support for Gantz because Gantz is a military figure who was the, the chief of the IDF. He was the head of the IDF. And so there's a lot of, maybe he knows what to do. But Israel, well, what Israel's entrenched in right now is not really just a battle with Hamas. As I mentioned before, the significantly larger military threat to Israel is not from the Gaza Strip, it's from the north. And if, if Israel learned one lesson from this, it's that you cannot wait until the bad guys decide to attack you. Israel is at some point going to have to preemptively take out Hezbollah in the north. They simply cannot live under the possibility of rocket fire every single day from the north. Again, the estimates say that if, if Hamas were to, if, if Hezbollah were to fire all of its rockets, which is like 150,000 rockets, if they were to fire all of those rockets, you're not talking about 1,500 Israelis dead. You're talking about 20 to 30,000 Israelis dead. And that would presumably be accompanied by Hezbollah has apparently tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand people in arms right now. I mean, that's not a, that's not a minor army in the Middle East. So that, so the fact is that Israel's next 20 years are going to be about building up the economy, strengthening the economy and making sure that they take the preemptive steps necessary to secure their own borders and make sure nothing like this ever happens again. To wrap up, we started talking about the, um, how the infiltration of these ideas had hit Western societies that, we're seeing Hamas um, celebrated in the streets. What 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 would your advice be for rolling this back? Is there a way to roll it back? How do we push back? A lot of my friends are saying, "All right, now I can see." I I you know people are identifying themselves, but others are just looking past it. What what's your advice for recovering from this mental infiltration? I mean, so first of first of all, as a civilization. Anybody who is a sympathizer with Hamas, who you can legally get out of your countries, do it. Uh, this doesn't seem like it should be all that controversial, but suddenly it's become very controversial to suggest that if you support a terrorist group that you don't actually deserve Western citizenship. That seems like a pretty obvious one. So if you're here on a student visa and you're out there standing for Hamas, it seems to me that you should be um, expected to leave. 
There, there's no reason we should continue to subsidize your presence in, in the West. That, that's number one. Number two, the West is going to have to learn to stand up for its own values and recognize that, yes, while the West has committed a myriad of sins across human history, the West is so far superior in culture and values to, to groups like Hamas that this entire framework is stupid, wrong, and evil. The entire framework that power necessarily means evil and powerlessness necessarily means virtue is a lie. It's always been a lie. And so the idea that the only way that you can restore your own virtue is to somehow surrender your, your power is, is not true at all. And if the West doesn't muscularly start standing up for its own values, it's just going to commit suicide. The, these groups don't have the power to destroy the West from without, but they certainly have the power to help, to help the West destroy itself from within. And, and that's what we have to stop. Full, uh, we have to stop that with every means at our disposal. Um, and you know, on a material level with regard to Israel, that means you actually do have to provide the moral and material aid to countries that are battling off the worst people on planet Earth without, without clearing your throat and without pretending that this is some sort of, of moral blight on you standing up for, for the right side in a conflict. Ben, thanks so much for the time. Thanks a lot. You and your family stay safe. I appreciate it. That was an incredibly personal and emotional interview with Ben Shapiro, a man that I've interviewed more times than I can remember. It used to be a weekly occurrence for about five years. And someone who doesn't like to speak personally in that way, a deeply moving interview in, in my view, but a smart and intelligent one. If you appreciated what Ben had to say, I hope that you take some time and, and share this um, to your personal friends, use your email, use your social media, uh, however you can share and, and get out the word. I think he had important things to say. If you're in the Calgary area, he will be speaking at an event on November 16th at the Eagle Gray Event Center in Alberta. He'll be talking about, well, most likely a lot of this, but also euthanasia, woke gender ideology, courts and schools revoking parental rights, and governments restricting freedom of speech. This is uh, an event that you want to get to. If you haven't seen Ben Shapiro speak in person, it is truly a treat. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for being part of all of this. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Listen through the app or Alexa-enabled devices and help us out by giving us a rating or leaving a review. And of course, by telling your friends all about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.